Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to be exploring the ways that physicists and physics have been affected by the lockdown caused by the COVID-19 coronavirus. We'll hear later in the podcast about an innovative way that the Women in Graphene conference was reworked to great effect. But there was a particularly entertaining post on the Physics World blog on the Physics World website, physicsworld.com, written by Hamish Johnston, which included a story about physicist and author Sabine Hossenfelder, who, as Hamish writes, is probably most famous for being the bane of those who believe that physics should have an underlying mathematical beauty, because she's the author of Lost in Math, How Beauty Leads Physics Astray. Sabine and climate physicist Tim Palmer have produced a reworking of a classic song. We'll come to that, but I began by asking Sabine, who is a research fellow at the Frankfurt Institute for Advanced Studies, what she's been working on of late. Well, I broadly speaking work in the foundations of physics. Um, I used to do um, high energy physics, then I did quantum gravity. Uh, Now I uh, work mostly on um, dark matter, and modified gravity, and also um, the foundations of quantum mechanics. So you see, I circle around this area. (laughs) The funny thing about it is that it's really hard to say whether it actually is dark matter or modified gravity. So a lot of people tend to think that um, this is like uh, two totally separate things. Um, But if you actually look at the mathematics, it's not always clear what you're dealing with. Like, um, is it is it a modification of the gravitational part or is it an additional type of matter? So why is this not clear? Well, it's not clear because um, the way that uh, you normally modify gravity is by adding additional fields. And the way that you uh, modify the particle sector is by adding new particles. Um, But we know that particles are also fields and fields are also particles, right? Um, So if you just look at the mathematics, it's absolutely not clear. Would be fine with me. You know, for a long time, I thought um, it's probably a new particle because, you know, I started out as a particle physicist. So I was always like, oh, yeah, it's going to be a new particle. And it's only a matter of time until they find it. And uh, then they will give it a name. And that's the end of the story. Uh, But that's not how it went, right? Uh, They didn't find it. And instead, what has happened is that um, astronomers have found an increasing amount of observations that are actually hard to explain with um, the the simple stock matter models. Uh, And so over the course of time, I've um, found that modified gravity has become more appealing again. But um, the issue is with modified uh, gravity that, um, well, the version that people usually talk about is MONT, right? Um, So so modified Newtonian dynamics. Um, But of course, the issue is that this is only um, the Newtonian limit. It's not um, generally relativistically invariant the way that you would want it to have um, for a theory that is supposed to uh, improve general relativity. Um, so Mond is not going to do it. Actually, strictly speaking, we already know that it is wrong, which should not be surprising because strictly speaking, also Newtonian gravity is wrong, right? Um, but then the question is like, what is the full theory? What does it look like? And, and we just don't have one. 
So, so that's the open question. But um, I'm increasingly looking at this from the observational perspective, um, because now we have a lot of data, like also this, this data from the um, gravitational wave events. Um, that tells you that the optical signal um, arrives at pretty much the same time, you know, two seconds or something later than the gravitational wave part. Um, this tells you that to very high accuracy, um, the speed of light is the same as um, the speed of gravitational waves. And this is a very strong constraint on modifications of gravity. So one learns a lot from this. And um, so, so the way that I'm trying to go about this is, is not uh, to start with some you know, idealized version that I would like to have, um, but more to say, well, what does, what do the observations already tell us? Um, what um, are the remaining models that can work? And um, so right now, I think that this um, super fluid or modified gravity um, idea is the simplest explanation that there is for the data. Have the early days of this coronavirus COVID nineteen lockdown affected the way that you do your work? Well, I I work at a research institute, so I don't have teaching duties. I uh, do mostly research, mentor students. You know, I have a postdoc, uh, I write papers, organize conferences, uh, that kind of stuff. To me, it's not such a big change because I uh, work fifty percent from home anyway. That's because. I don't actually live in the city where I work, so it's like a 100-kilometer commute, uh, and it's too too long to do it every day. So I'm only there every other week. But it, it did bring some changes. <laughs> this uh, with uh, my student in Frankfurt, and normally we meet at the institute, um, but the institute is closed. Um, so um, now we, we talk on Skype. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is a little bit more complicated as we just noticed, you know, sometimes the connection breaks down. This is something which does not happen if you sit in the same office. Um, but, um, you know, given the situation, uh, I think it's reasonable that they close the Institute and uh, it will be closed until after Easter for now. And, um, you know, it's not like we're we're not doing lab work or something where we actually have to be at the location. So I think for us, it's not uh, it's not a big difference. It's a similar story with my postdoc. You know, usually we meet in person and now we talk on Skype. Um, yeah, so, so this is um, one of the changes uh, that it brings. Um, something else that uh, I guess a lot of people have had to cope with is that um, we were in the process of organizing a workshop, <laughs> uh, which was supposed to take place in May. And we've had to postpone this to an uh, unclear future date, uh, possibly sometime in the fall, but who knows. <laughs> and of course, this you know, brought some complications. You know, we had to cancel some of the reservations, bookings, catering that had already been made. And now we're trying to figure out what to do with it, you know. And then we had to tell everybody who had already agreed to come, <laughs> sorry, it's not going to take place. And so everyone has been very understanding. And actually, um, you know, it, it did not come as that much of a surprise. Uh, I mean, when when we decided to cancel this, there were already some clear warning signs um, that this virus was going to spread also in North America and in Europe to a significant extent. 
uh, and a lot of people actually held back booking their flights, um, which is good because um, we don't have to reimburse them even though they're not coming. Um, so we were actually lucky. We we don't have a lot of useless expensive. We we've pretty much been able to cancel everything without having to pay. But yeah, I mean, it's still. I would have wanted to have this workshop, right? <laughs> uh, so I was really excited about this, and now we're all sitting around <laughs> waiting uh, what's going to happen, basically. Yeah, it's a funny time, isn't it? But are, are you missing the face-to-face -face contact with people? Well, it's it's making things a little bit more complicated um, in the sense. So I, that's why I wouldn't say that I'm missing it. Like if I if I want to talk to someone, I can't talk to them. It's just not as easy as. Uh, going on the corridor and having a chat. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're pretty much all in the same situation. Um, and uh, I think that makes it easier. You know, if it was only me and everyone else was meeting, then I guess it would be more more difficult. But uh, since it's pretty much the same for everyone, uh, so far, I think it's 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 worked okay for me. I mean, in the long run, it's it's going to make a big difference because uh, of all the seminars that have been cancelled and uh, of all the workshops that are not taking place and so on. But uh, you know, we're we're now in this for two weeks, um, so this is only just the beginning. I guess in the long run, we'll have to you know, rethink how we organise um, our work life. As I say, this conversation was taking place in the early days of the lockdown, or certainly the early weeks of the lockdown. And uh, we have now all started to reconsider the way that we do work a, a bit more depth and a bit more long term. We'll come to that later in the podcast. But while I was talking to Sabine, I noticed that she had a green screen in the background. Yeah, um, if it works, yeah. So this green screen, it's actually, it's bleaching out, as I noticed the other day. I'll, I'll have to turn it around at some point. Um, it's it's less green than it used to be. Um, but yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've done um, YouTube videos. Um, I mean, I've been on YouTube like for 10 years or something, but until a year ago, I didn't actually do a lot. And now I've um, I've doing more because, uh, as you probably know, I um, I used to write a blog. Um, but uh, blogs are not very well are not doing very well with the changes that we see to search engines. Um, I used to uh, it used to be easier to attract new audiences, but now it's it's pretty much if you're stuck with the audience that you have. And sometimes I want to uh, say something about a new topic, and uh, then it's really hard to connect to people who may be interested in it. And YouTube actually does much better on that account uh, because they will try to find an audience for your content with, with their algorithm. You know, it's, if, if you look at YouTube, you get all these recommendations. You, you may be interested in that. And for written content on blogs, there is just nothing comparable right now. So this is why, why I've been moving to YouTube. And I think it's been going fine. Um, so, so this is why I have all this equipment here with the lights and the green screen and, and stuff like that. Uh, recent visitors to physicsworld.com may well have noticed one of your videos being featured on the blog there. And uh, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that because you've reworked the REM classic. It's the end of the world as we know it. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so actually, the way that this came about is because this workshop was cancelled that I just told you about. Because so I I, I made this uh, song together with um, Tim Palmer, who's who's in um, Oxford, and um, he's one of the people who I uh, was organizing this workshop with. And so now we both work from home from home. And, uh, you know, we were talking about what to do about this workshop. And I saw that he has all these guitars <laughs> in his back, you know, the way that you just saw my green screen. Right. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. You know, I've been working on redoing the song. And so this is how this came about. Sabine Hossenfelder and Tim Palmer with their reworking of the REM classic It's the End of the World as We Know It. Uh, I feel fine, don't know about you. But as I mentioned, that song, the video for that song is featured on the Physics World website in the blog section looking at Physics in the Pandemic. And there's a series of posts on Physics in the Pandemic. And after I'd spoken to Sabine, I noticed an interesting story come up written by Bonnie Sim of the University of Manchester, but particularly with a view to how we might start to think about conferences in this online world we're now working in more and more as the lockdown continues. I'm Bonnie Sim. I'm a PhD student at the University of Manchester and my work is based on modelling the electronic properties of twisted bilayer graphene. Graphene is a single layer of carbon atoms and when you have two layers of graphene on top of each other and you twist them um, with an angle relative in plane to each other at 1.1 degrees we see superconductivity and actually in 2018, um, that discovery was awarded the Physics World Breakthrough of the Year. And that's the year when I started my PhD. So it was all very exciting and fast paced. And now there's multiple groups around the world trying to understand why there's superconductivity uh, in this material, both from an experimental perspective and from a theoretical perspective. 
So I work completely on the theoretical physics side and I've been looking at angles which are not in the range of the superconducting region. So maybe bigger angles such as two degrees and also very, very small angles like 0.1 degrees because you can really compare the different properties at really large angles and also really small. And then you can kind of see a small region where behavior is very unconventional and special. So I finished my PhD next year. Uh, it's all very difficult and challenging, but it's really fun. And because there's a lot of pressure uh, with everyone working on it, uh, it's a nice, there's some nice competitive spirit as well. Oh, is there? Is there? Yeah. Is it so are there people working on similar PhDs to you or is it all kind of different areas? There's a lot of us working on different areas of the same material. So we might be looking at different physics um, within that material. So it's quite good because then it means multiple students will have uh, contribute to a bigger picture of what this material is. How's it going? I think it's going okay. Uh, I think the best part of my PhD so far is that I went over to Japan to Osaka University for two months last year. So I was able to initiate collaboration over there based on twisted bioleographene as well. Um, that was the best part. And then now, because I'm in third year, it's sort of like, oh, I need one more project to have enough for my thesis. So. Yeah, it's progressing over halfway, so yeah. it's good. Okay. The beginning of graphene in the when it was first discovered, and there was a lot of talk in the in the media about uh, using sellotape on yeah. um, pencils. Is that still how you get it? Yeah. So the experimentalists still use um, that exfoliation technique to get graphene. It's one of the best ways to get re a really good graphene flake. Okay. Gosh, that's funny. How has this all been affected by uh, COVID-19 then and the lockdown? I think for me, it's been quite a welcome break. So <laughs> nearly all my work is based on the computer. So I'm not really, I'm technically completely unaffected. But because I'm away from university, I don't necessarily have all the commitments of specific times where I have to do things um, based on what other people are doing and when they can have meetings. So I've been able to brush upon the skills that I've always wanted to do. So I've enrolled on a Python data science course and I've always wanted to do that. But when you're at uni, you don't want to necessarily use that overhead time to only focus on something which isn't directly going to lead to a publication. Mm. So for me, I think it's been quite good. Uh, I think the hardest part is conducting tutorials. So I teach some undergrad students and some of them have gone home. So there's like an eight hour time zone difference. So I've essentially said, you can hand in your work if you'd like, and I'll look at it. But also, I'm not going to make you do the tutorial when it's 10 p.m. Okay. Uh, so I think it's hard. Uh, so for me personally, it's fine, but then checking up on everyone else is more difficult because sometimes they just don't reply to email. So you don't know whether it's good or bad. For those who don't know, what's uh, Python data? Python is a coding language and it's used to model all sorts of things. So in industry, a lot of people use Python to 
analyze data sets. So for example, maybe not such big data sets such as like bank transactions, uh, but you can do a lot of uh, data analysis on financial modeling and such. And I think data science is a really expanding industry because there's data everywhere. So even in the pandemic, there's graphs released every day on the number of deaths or how the transmission rates. So I think it's a useful skill to have um, so that I can kind of transfer from a physics PhD into industry or business after my PhD. I know you're saying it's kind of, it's kind of a welcome break for you. Yeah. It, the way that it is, we're sort of a few weeks into it now. Do you feel like this would be a reasonable way to do your PhD generally? I think face-to-face -face contact is important in small doses. So for me, the style that I've always done PhD is that I don't necessarily meet anyone unless I'm stuck on a particular problem. But I've actually found that, so we're, our group are still conducting seminars every week over Zoom. And the turnout has been, I'd say, more than double than the usual turnout. So it, I think it's actually engaging people more by being online because you can do it anywhere. Um, you don't have to run between buildings. And also when it's over Zoom or Skype, you can definitely see uh, the speaker's slides and you can definitely hear them, which is not necessarily true uh, when it's in person. I think face-to-face -face contact is more important on the non-work side of things. So during lunch breaks, when you're hanging out with your colleagues or talking about menial things, I think that bit is probably more important in person. But the actual academic side works just as well mm. uh, online, I think. Yeah, I was talking to somebody uh, the other day in a meeting on Zoom and they were saying uh, it's quite nice because when you... Uh, have forgotten the meeting and then your diary reminder pops up you don't have to suddenly cycle across town to get to the meeting yeah. you can just log in and that might be contributing to the to the higher level of attendance <laughs> at meetings. yeah it's people um, i've never seen before in the meetings in my department i'm like oh hello <laughs> yeah. gosh you exist i didn't know that yeah. uh, but i know because you were saying that the you know the best thing about your phd so far has been the trip to osaka obviously you can't do that yeah. now but i was reading on physicsworld.com yeah <laughs> you went to a conference virtually can you tell me about that it was the best experience so the conference was women in graphene hosted by the european graphene flagship and it was hosted by virtual events so essentially, if you've ever played a video game, you make your own avatar, which looks exactly like you, and you navigate in this virtual world. So there's a lecture theatre. We're actually in this amphitheatre, so it looks like we're in the Roman times. And it's if anyone's ever played The Sims, that's exactly what it was like. So you had this avatar and everyone has a headset, so you can actually hear people in your vicinity. And when you move away from the vicinity of those people in the game, you don't hear them anymore. So mm. it was very much like uh, in person. Um, I thought it worked really well because originally the conference was going to be hosted in Bologna in Italy. And a lot of people would not have been able to go without a travel grant. But because it was hosted virtually, we had people from India there uh, and all over Europe. 
So, yeah, I thought it was a very good experience and we got to talk to people who we would not have seen in person. Hey, that's cool. That's cool. So were there talks and things taking place? So you had to sort of go to a place to listen to a talk? There were no parallel sessions. So there were only one, there was only one programme. So everyone would go to that room. And then after listening to the talks, we could all go to the networking room. So there was a designated place where you could have general chit chat. Um, so that worked really well. And then when I found that more people asked questions because it was virtual, uh, so you could type in your question on the chat. And because if you were shy, for example, you don't have to put your hand up and ask. Lots of people asked, I think, more personal and direct questions. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I, was, I saw a, a, a news report that a company had used Animal Crossing on the Nintendo Switch to, to host a meeting. And they did admit that the reason that they'd done it was for fun. Yeah. But they said that the uh, the problem was that everyone started getting involved and dis distracted by playing the game rather than yeah holding the thing. But this um, this sounds like something where it, the distractions aren't there because it you're all there specifically for this. Yeah. There's no, like there's nothing else you can do that other than jump and run. But when you start doing that. Uh, the moderators of the platform will make you sit down again automatically so you can't get distracted. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That would be kind of useful in real life, wouldn't it? If there's people running around and you could forcibly sit them down. Yeah, because I was running around and then, and then suddenly I was sitting down again. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> it works. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very effective. And I think... It's interesting because Vertway Events, I think, is quite a new platform. Um, I'd say probably even a startup. So for them, it's great exposure for them and people never really had to use um, software like that. So I think even though some industries are being affected, new ones will pop up because of the pandemic. Clearly, the Women in Graphing Conference was a success for Bonnie Sim, who was not only a delegate at the conference, but a speaker. And she gave a talk at the conference entitled Be Bold, Be Brave and Be Visible. If you'd like to find the slides for Bonnie's talk, you can go to graphene-flagship.eu and look for their page on the Women in Graphene 2020 conference. There you'll find the slides from Bonnie's talk. But it being successful from the point of view of those involved is all very well and good. But I wanted to find out how it was for someone who'd been involved in organising it. So I spoke to Rebecca Waters. I am the communications officer and the work package leader for the work package dissemination of the Graphene Flagship. Um, the Graphene Flagship is a large European project. Um, it's one of three billion dollar research projects funded by the European Commission. So it was actually a fairly landmark project and uh, our purpose is to focus on graphene. So what I do is help disseminate the information and make sure people know what we're doing. Um, it's a very broad project. They do everything from fundamental research on the atomic properties of graphene all the way to different applications. And our actual goal is to help stimulate the European economy by creating new applications, new businesses, new jobs working in the field of graphene. Um, and one of the main reasons for this is that 
oftentimes Europe is at the forefront in discovering new things, new technologies, new materials, but then other larger markets end up stealing that lead and being the ones to end up marketing the, the material or the technology. And so basically we're, we're sort of a technology accelerator that we're helping to close that gap between research and industry and help European industries actually adopt the, the material instead of letting, for example, the American or the Asian markets take over that role. Um, so we see a lot of a different potential and in basically it was, it started out as a 10 year project. We're about seven years in and we've really come a long way from literally just looking at what are the properties of this, what can we do with it to now having real products. We have now 11 new spearhead projects who are run by industry, all trying to create very specific products that they believe are critical to their industry. So for example, we have one from Lufthansa and they're working on filters for airplane cabins. So literally filters that can take germs and other small particles that current filters cannot take out of the air out, um, who can't see the practical applications there. I mean, to be able to take a flight and not get sick, that'd be great. Um, another one working on water filters, um, working on autonomous driving vehicles. So we have a lot of very practical applications now compared to seven years ago when we were really just looking at what can graphene do. Can you tell me what the application of graphene is in autonomous vehicles? Uh, so we actually have a group that's working on a very special kind of sensor to help with the cameras that would help with vision beyond what normal cameras do. So um, like seeing things in infrared and seeing things on other on, in other spectrum. Um, and one of the cool things with graphene too is because it's electrically conductive and because it's very light, they can actually build it into certain parts of cars. Um, so for example, the dashboard itself could be the electrical circuit. You wouldn't have to have additional components. And I guess for car manufacturers, that's a, a real plus to be able to integrate some of these components into the pieces, both for like the building process, but also weight considerations, cost considerations. Um, so it seems that it seems it's a very interesting application for them, even beyond the autonomous vehicle, but regular vehicles, you know, some of the dashboard pieces also could be replaced with graphene circuitry, et cetera. It's really interesting because it, 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 it's not that long since graphene was discovered, is it? And here we are talking about real world applications of it. No, if you compare it to some of the other materials, I mean, silicon even, it's, it's been very rapid. And I think in some part, you can definitely say projects like ours have helped that. So. Cool. And you've also been involved recently in um, the Women in Graphene Conference. Women in Graphene is actually an initiative that we started in order to help improve the balance and increase opportunities for women in science. It's been shown that there's a really high dropout rate, you know, between girls starting to learn science to women entering as PhDs and then to being professors, researchers, et cetera. Um, and we saw obviously the same trend in graphene research. And so it's an initiative to provide support to give them a network, some skills, trainings, um, but also to help educate everybody in our graphene flagship community about the importance of gender diversity in science and 
um, we're actually expanding this initiative in this next core of the FEM project to actually be more inclusive, to actually look at uh, diversity as a whole, not just the gender gap, but also other underrepresented groups that we find in the project, which I think will be really good because a lot of the same tools that we're using to help women in science can help other groups as well. So, so what sort of tools are you using? We have two different events during the year, and one's just at our conference where it's more of having speakers and a networking event, but then we have a yearly career day, and part of this career day is usually a half-day session training on specific career skills. So this year, for example, we did negotiation training, and it could be negotiating a new job, a new title, or just even talking to coworkers to make sure that your point of view is heard in the noise of a group. That was really powerful training. Last year, we did another one that was more about how to promote yourself and your work. So these are really hands-on kind of skills training that really is applicable to everybody, but we feel especially some of the young women in the program can benefit from these skills in order to advance. The Women in Graphene Conference, obviously, I imagine when you started planning it, you weren't planning to do it online. No, actually, it was scheduled to be in Bologna, Italy. Um, so one of our partners, CNR, had a space that they were willing to let us use. Um, but as you know, Italy was one of the first countries to get locked down. And so we had to make a very quick turnaround, actually, and switch to a virtual event because we thought it was really important to our community not to miss this event. And so how did you go about it? Yeah, so actually it was a, a new world for us. We were not prepared necessarily. Uh, we didn't know what the platforms were available. So the first step was really to think about, you know, do we want to do just a, a simple webinar series or a team meeting? Um, do we want to do some kind of virtual platform? And so we explored the different elements. And one of the things that we were really thinking about is for this particular event in this community, the networking portion was really important. And then also the skills training, the way that we do the skills training, it's not just a lecture. Um, the person who gives the skills training breaks people up in groups. They have to interact together. They have to actually put to practice the, the techniques that she's teaching. And that really could not be done in a webinar pro process. So if we had stuck to a, a straight up webinar, we would have to change the format and we thought something would really be lost. And that's why we, we decided a virtual platform would be much better for us. And in the end, we found one that, you know, First of all, it was very short notice. We had two weeks to make the event happen. Um, so we found somebody who, one, was available and two, had the, the capability to have the type of event that we wanted. Um, and we ended up with a, a company called Virtue Events. Um, they're based in Spain. They actually just really made it happen. We were able to customize the world or the conference center that we were in. We were able to set up a networking area and a little bit of an exhibition area and um, they even helped us train the speakers, do everything, because, like I said, this is something that we hadn't done before. Um, and it's actually was remarkably easy in a way, um, because they they provided the skills on how to actually put everything together. Um, and I think the biggest thing was just sort of the the learning curve for people entering the program. Can you just kind of describe to me what it felt like, what it looked like as, as somebody coming to the conference online? What, what, what did you do? If you were to first log on, um, we recommended people did it a little bit early because you first had to go and pick an avatar. Um, so a digital version of yourself. So you could say, this is what I look like, my hair color, this is what I'm wearing. 
And that took a little bit of time, but it was kind of fun. And then you enter and it's almost like being in Sims or some of these other like computer games. You could see yourself and you could see other people. You could talk to people. You could hear people talk. Even it was set up sort of like the real world where the closer you were to somebody, the more likely they could hear you. The people who were presenting were able to talk to the entire room. But for people who weren't in in that presenter mode, they could only talk to the people near them. So there was sort of the same effect as if you were in a real networking event, you could actually kind of step aside and have a conversation one-on-one without without feeling like you were broadcasting your opinions Mm -hmm. to the entire group of 70 people that we had online, which is not really a very comfortable way to network. Um, So we thought that it was a, a very interesting way, even though you couldn't see the people, you could interact in a more personal way than you can in know, a simple lecture. Uh, And especially since people had already been on lockdown, at least some of the attendees had already been on lockdown for a while. I think it was really well received because people were sitting in their apartments thinking, gosh, I can't even talk to my coworkers anymore. And they were able to interact with people in a mostly human kind of level. Yeah. Yeah. So the people actually speaking out loud then to have conversation. Yeah. So you basically, you had to have a headset for it to work well. Um, and then you kind of had to click to talk so that you wouldn't just be talking all the time or be heard all the time. But it was very possible to kind of step aside, have a conversation with somebody, or we kind of had a group discussion. Um, and then for our training, for example, they were able to set up sections where people were inside circles and the conversation in that circle could not be heard outside the circle. So you didn't have this cacophony of lots of people making noise around you. So in some ways, it's almost nicer if you're in a real venue, you do hear other groups talking and here you could really pick, you know, you had two people in a, a circle, three people in a circle, and those people could have a private conversation, which allowed the trainer to be able to then step between circles and sort of help interact, um, make sure people were were understanding the lessons that she had, she had taught and wanted them to practice. So it was really actually very cool that we could do something like this without being in person. Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting. So was, were there any issues that you came across if someone else was thinking of doing it that you would flag up? Definitely starting two weeks before the event made it a little bit rushed. And there were a lot of things that we learned sort of as we went. Um, but definitely speaker training and being having some time before the actual activities begin to train the users is important because not everybody is comfortable using these types of platforms. Um, There are different platforms. Some require you to install programs, some don't, but uh, it definitely, I think, is worth spending some time and planning ahead so that you can customize your world more, prepare your audience more for what to expect. Communication with the audience beforehand is really important just so that they know what they will see when they enter the platform, what they have to do to get it set up. Not everybody finds these sorts of things very intuitive. When you say you customize your world, have you got like a speaker's platform and podium and seats? and? Yeah, so actually in, in our case, we actually had three different spaces. We had a, a lobby where we were able to make a little booth that had our graphing flagship booth, kind of like we would at a normal event um, where our staff could stand and answer questions. We had posters that we could put up basically around the venue. Um, and then we had a networking area that was sort of little couches and a place where people could talk. And then the main event happened in what was basically kind of a, a conference hall or meeting room uh, with stadium seating. And there, there were three big screens. Uh, so it was possible to have 
for example, a PowerPoint presentation, somebody's webcam running, plus something else, uh, all running simultaneously. Uh, on the sides, you could have also more signs, et cetera. Um, it's also possible to do almost like a boardroom style kind of meeting room. Um, you can do exhibitions with these types of programs um, where you could actually have exhibitors design a booth, have videos available, that sort of thing. So there's really a lot of possibilities. And so you have to think about what is your event? What's the purpose of the event? How do you want the audience to interact with the world? And then it seems like it's almost an unlimited potential as far as how you want to set up the space. Um, and like I said, it can look very much like a natural conference would with a meeting room and a screen and the speaker's avatar actually walks to the podium and can stand at the podium. Um, people can raise their hands, they can clap, they can stand up, sit down. Um, so you can interact a little bit um, where I think a lot of speakers who speak in webinars, one of the struggles that they have is that they have no concept of whether the audience is still there listening, engaging. And so if you can see people's avatars clapping or raising their hand to ask questions, it feels a little bit more interactive, even though you don't see the actual person. Mm, that's really interesting. I just, I'm a lecturer in my uh, day job. Um, I'm just thinking it'd be quite nice to, to, to do a lecture and then have lots of avatars clapping at the end. That would be quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a very cool thing. Um, I don't know if you saw any of the screenshots we have on our website, but you can kind of see what the world kind of looked and felt like and how people were placed inside of it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was really interesting especially given the current situation. But honestly, we're even thinking about what the potentials are beyond COVID um, because we are a program that, or a project that's spread across such a big geographic area. And not everyone involved in the project has the availability time-wise or even the money to constantly be traveling to in-person events. Also, a lot of our big in-person events are only once a year. And that's a really long time between times that you connect with your audience and your, your community. So it really does give you an opportunity to connect more often. Uh, and it makes it a lot more accessible for people who don't have the means to travel all the time. So, I mean, maybe directors of an institution, they don't have to stop and think, okay, should I go to this conference? Should I not? But maybe the PhD students or the postdocs, some of the researchers, they don't have unlimited funds for this. And they also may not have unlimited money time or you know availability to get away from family that sort of thing so we're really curious about how we can expand our virtual portfolio i don't think many of us when we headed into this lockdown expected it to change the way that we'll be doing work afterwards but i think that's something that a lot of us are finding as you heard from the conversation that i was having with sabine making the podcast through online communications has caused some issues but i hope you've enjoyed this episode of the physics world stories podcast and don't forget that if you would like to know more about the way physicists and physics are being affected by the coronavirus then you can go to physicsworld.com and find a host of stories all about that on the physics world blog thank you very much for listening and we'll be back next month with something else from this wonderful world of physics. Physics World.